Welcome to Raising Celiac, a podcast dedicated to raising the standard of education, awareness, and research on celiac disease and related autoimmune conditions. I'm Vanessa Weisbrod, the Education Director of the Celiac Program at Boston Children's Hospital, and each month on the podcast, we will invite leading experts to dive into a condition related to celiac and look at how it impacts a patient family, the latest research, and offers suggestions for health providers to manage these complex cases. Every episode of the Raising Celiac podcast is accredited by the Boston Children's Hospital Continuing Education Department for 0.5 AMA PRA Category 1 credits for physicians, 0.5 contact hours for nurses, 0.5 ACE CE Continuing Education credits for social workers, and 0.5 CEUs for registered dietitians. To claim your credits for listening to today's episode, please visit dme.childrenshospital.org slash Raising Celiac. Let's get started with this month's Raising Celiac Patient Story. Eliza led a very normal childhood and, with the exception of needing glasses at an early age, had few medical concerns. It wasn't until she was in her mid-20s when she started trying to have a child that she found herself visiting the doctor on a very frequent basis. Eliza and her husband had no trouble getting pregnant. Staying pregnant was the issue. Five times in a row, she miscarried between 8 and 19 weeks. Fertility specialists couldn't seem to explain the issues and recommended that they just keep trying. So they did. After nearly 10 years of trying, Eliza and her husband welcomed a premature but very beautiful and healthy baby girl. Over the last decade, several research studies have garnered conflicting results when looking at the link between celiac disease and fertility issues. Some research has shown that women with undiagnosed celiac may struggle with fertility, while others have found that there is no increased risk of infertility. It is unclear if nutritional concerns, like malabsorption that occurs with untreated celiac disease, may cause reproductive issues, or if the immune system may be the culprit. Fast forward two years. Eliza thought that she was exhausted all the time because she was a working mom of an energetic toddler and constantly on the go. Her stomach hurt many days a week, and she had lost quite a bit of weight, even though she wasn't trying to. Every morning, she had diarrhea. She had to go at least three times before she could leave the house. When she got on the scale and it read 90 pounds, she knew she needed to see a doctor. She scheduled a visit with her primary care and had lots of labs done. She was severely anemic, deficient in vitamin B12, and had a tissue transglutaminase antibody level that was more than 10 times the upper limit of normal. She was scheduled for a visit with a gastroenterologist within two weeks and underwent an endoscopy that showed total villus atrophy, a clear indication she had celiac disease. As Eliza started doing research on celiac disease, it made perfect sense. But what she wasn't expecting to learn is that her prior struggles with pregnancy could have been related to celiac disease. With this knowledge in hand, she felt hopeful she would feel better soon and would be able to start trying to give her daughter a sibling. It's well established that patients with celiac disease often have problems absorbing calcium, iron, folate, and other vitamins and minerals. This can lead to iron deficiency anemia and low bone density. The good news is that most often these deficiencies correct once on a strict gluten-free diet and the gut heals. Most patients feel better quite quickly, though some can take more than a year or two to fully respond to the gluten-free diet. Eliza went on a gluten-free diet and felt a little better. She was very strict about her diet and never cheated, even when she really wanted a bite of a soft and chewy gluten-containing bagel 
while on a family trip to New York. Despite her vigilance with a gluten-free diet, two years after her diagnosis, she still didn't feel well and the daily diarrhea was severely impacting her quality of life. She was feeling antsy because she really wanted a second child, but her health just wasn't strong enough to endure the physical demands of a pregnancy. She headed back to the gastroenterologist. After a round of blood work, stool tests, and a colonoscopy, Eliza found herself with a second diagnosis of ulcerative colitis. Ulcerative colitis is a type of inflammatory bowel disease in which the inner lining of the colon and rectum become inflamed. Inflammation usually begins in the rectum and lower large intestine and spreads upward, potentially involving the entire colon. Ulcerative colitis causes diarrhea and frequent emptying of the colon. As cells on the surface of the colon die and fall off, ulcers form, leading to pus, mucus, and bleeding. Ulcerative colitis may occur at any age, but is most common in older children and young adults and may run in some families. Like celiac disease, ulcerative colitis is a chronic autoimmune disease where the body mistakenly attacks itself. Similarly to celiac, it may be triggered by a combination of genetic and environmental factors. But for Eliza, which came first? Did one autoimmune disease cause the other? Should she have been tested for more at the time of her celiac diagnosis? And did these two conditions play a role in her struggles to stay pregnant? We'll discuss this and more on today's episode of Raising Celiac. Today, we talk about celiac disease and IBD with Dr. Maria Inez Pinto-Sanchez. Dr. Pinto-Sanchez is a gastroenterologist at McMaster University in Hamilton Health Sciences. She is the director of the Celiac Clinic at McMaster University and provides nutritional support for the Home Perinatal Nutrition Program and Intestinal Failure Clinic. Her clinical and research interests include the diagnosis and treatment of different gastrointestinal conditions with a focus on celiac disease and gluten-related disorders. She recently authored a paper on the Association of Celiac Disease and Inflammatory Bowel Disease, which she's going to tell us more about today. On a personal note, I get to work with her on educational programming for the Society for the Study of Celiac Disease, and honored she is joining us today. Welcome, Dr. Pinto Sanchez, to Raising Celiac. Thank you very much, Vanessa, for inviting me, and I think it's fantastic that you're doing this podcast to educate people and raise awareness about celiac disease. Thank you. We are very excited about it. So before we talk about Eliza's story, I want to talk about the similarities and differences between celiac disease and inflammatory bowel disease. Can you tell our listeners how they are alike and how they are different? Absolutely. So both inflammatory bowel disease and celiac disease are considered chronic, which is long-term inflammatory conditions, and both involve the immune system. So, and both of them affect the gut. However, there are some differences between IBD and celiac disease. Celiac disease is characterized by inflammation, so you can see inflammation in the gut, but ulcers, having ulcers which you describe already for these patients are not quite common. It's very, very rare to find ulcers in celiac disease. And also celiac disease affects the small bowel and mainly the very first part of the small bowel. So it, this is different from inflammatory bowel disease as well. In the opposite hand, IBD or inflammatory bowel disease involves two main conditions, and one of them is ulcerative colitis, which Eliza has been diagnosed with. This ulcerative colitis affects mainly the colon, which is a large bowel, and the second one, which is Crohn's disease, can affect any part of the gut, and both of them, they produce such inflammation and lead to ulcers. So these are the differences between celiac and IBD, and as you will see, 
they can share symptoms in common, but when you do the endoscopy, you can differentiate most of the times both of them. And another important aspect is that celiac disease is a genetic condition. And that means that it has a strong genetic predisposition and that's why it runs in families. And that's why it's so common to find another celiac in a family. However, in IBD, whether there are some genes involved and there are some family predisposition, it's not as strong as in celiac disease. Great. So Eliza stuck to a very strict gluten-free diet, or at least she claimed to. How do you assess if the continuing symptoms are related to ongoing gluten exposures or potentially a different disease process? So the first thing that we do is to have a dietitian education and assessment. And this is because we can identify sometimes by interviewing the patient situations that can expose people to gluten. And then we can correct those. And then we do have other objective measures. Some of them, they're not perfect. For example, TTG antibodies or celiac markers. And we do that to determine if the person has been exposed. So mostly if they have their celiac active, which is related secondary to gluten exposure. The problem is that these markers are not very accurate to determine exposure, especially if it is very occasional. And that's why there is a novel test also that you can detect gluten in stool. Like gluten is not gluten itself, it's the reaction or antibodies produced when people are exposed to gluten. So these are the very tiny parts after gluten digestion. And these two tests or urine tests to detect gluten can be done at home. So most of the times we do, we progress dietitian, do blood work, and then we advise people to get these tests to self assess gluten exposure. If all these tests are negative, then we need to look for other reasons, right? To see if uh, this person is experiencing symptoms that is not related to gluten. Great. How do you counsel a patient like Eliza on the importance of sticking to a gluten-free diet when it doesn't seem to be helping their symptoms? This is a real, real situation and is very challenging for everybody. And it's very important that we discuss with our patient that symptoms don't always correlate with the celiac activity, right? So patients with celiac disease can have significant amount of inflammation in their gut and not much symptoms or not perceived symptoms. And then in the opposite hand, they can have a lot of symptoms and not very much inflammation in the gut. But the truth is that the only way of getting their celiac disease under good control is to be completely, completely away of gluten. And that's why we recommend patients to explain this after explaining this is to strongly recommend to adopt, you know, like a strict gluten-free diet so then the gut can heal. So your group at McMaster recently published a study in the journal Gastroenterology that establishes a connection between celiac and IBD. Can you tell our listeners about the study? What did you look at and what did you find? Absolutely. That was very exciting. And we look into the association between celiac and IBD because there has been always and many, many studies evaluating this association and there has been controversies in those results. And that's why what we did in order to approach when you have a lot of studies there out there and then there are controversies, the next step is to look and pull all these studies. And this is what we did. We did a systematic review with meta-analysis, which is uh, pulling all these studies together to get information on whether celiac disease was associated with IBD. And this is not just pulling. It requires, an, a, you know, like a 
very rigorous technique and knowledge and how to do this properly and how to set up protocol in advance, set up criteria. Not every single study that is out there will qualify, right? Right. Then we did that. And after pulling 64 studies, we determined that there is a nine-fold increase risk of having IVD in celiac disease. If so, if patient has celiac disease, it has nine times more chances of getting IVD and most frequently Crohn's disease. And in the opposite hand, if you have IVD, it is fourfold increase, so four times more frequent to have celiac disease than someone that doesn't have celiac disease. So in both ends, there is an increased risk of having the other condition if you've been diagnosed with the previous. And more recently, I was invited also to collaborate with prestigious colleagues, you know, from Sweden and the U.S., Columbia University, and to analyze a database from all people from Sweden that have been diagnosed with celiac disease and also IBD. And that were like over 160,000 people. And the same results came in that large, very, very large study. There was an increased risk of IBD in celiac disease and vice versa. And another important finding from that study, that the, la- the latest that was recently published, is that the diagnosis of IBD in celiac disease is usually done within a year. So it's pretty quick, relatively quick, right? So those are important findings, but still, you know, we have other questions that, that requires more for research. So for these, it's a quick diagnosis of the second condition, are these patients coming back and saying that they're still symptomatic despite the treatments that they're being on, or how is it happening so quickly? Yes. So usually most of the time, patients, when they are diagnosed with a celiac disease and they start a gluten-free diet, similar to what happened to Eliza, they are doing the diet very strict. They see a dietitian. There is no cross-contamination. That's the first thing that we do. And then if they persist with symptoms, we start other investigations. And one of the investigations involve a stool test or a blood work and ultimately chronoscopy to rule out inflammatory bowel disease. So the data establishes this link, but how should gastroenterologists use this information in their everyday clinical practices? So once we do the studies and once we do these meta-analysis, those are usually used to develop guidelines, right? So this is one way of reaching other colleagues, but it is very important that not only gastroenterologists, but all clinicians are aware of this association. And they consider, and this is because if they're aware of this association, they should consider investigating for celiac disease in someone that has IBD and is not responding to the treatment or vice versa. If you have celiac disease and is not responding to gluten-free diet and have persistent symptoms to investigate for IBD as well, because again, it's more frequent than in the general population. Is the treatment for either condition modified based on having the dual diagnosis? So that's an interesting question, and there are no many research studies on that. But let's say that a person with celiac disease should follow a strict gluten-free diet anyways, right? And if they are diagnosed with IBD on top of the celiac disease, more likely this person is going to be prescribed with additional treatment which can involve, depending on the location of the disease, like enemas, or can involve like, you know, like a tablet corticosteroids or tablets anti-inflammatories or immunosuppressants or intravenous medications. So there are a big variety of medications related to the severity of the IBD. In the opposite hand, if an IBD is diagnosed and the person is doing all this treatment and has persistent symptoms or is diagnosed with celiac disease, very likely this person is going to start gluten-free diet. And one of the things that is important is that the gluten-free diet is not, it shouldn't be prescribed to all IBD. 
only to those that are diagnosed with celiac disease. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our podcast sponsor, the Global Autoimmune Institute. The Global Autoimmune Institute works to empower solutions in the diagnosis and treatment of autoimmune diseases through research, education, and awareness while supporting multidisciplinary approaches to health. We are thrilled to support the production of this educational podcast. So thinking about Eliza's story and the diagnosis of celiac disease, should additional screening for IBD have been done at the time of celiac diagnosis, or was the high tissue transglutaminase level a reason to only do the small bowel biopsy? Yeah, so that's a very good question. So we acknowledge that there is an association. However, not everyone with celiac disease will have IBD or vice versa, right? So at this time, it's unclear whether which, you know, we should screen for IBD in everyone, with celiac disease or celiac disease in everyone with IBD. So what we do right now, and I think until we have more information, is to check for IBD only if symptoms persist despite a very strict diet. Or in the opposite hand is to screen for celiac disease if a person continues with, let's say, diarrhea, bloating, distension, or gastrointestinal symptoms despite doing different medications for IBD. And they, especially sometimes the IBD is less active and then they have still symptoms and then diagnosed with celiac disease later on. And the TDG is tricky because it can be high also people with IBD without being celiac. So it's important to dig deeper in the diagnosis, to obtain the endoscopy, small bowel biopsies, and trying to characterize very well whether this is associated celiac disease or is just a TDG elevated, mildly elevated because of a secondary to cross-reaction to the IBD. So how would a gastroenterologist make a decision to test for one, the other, or both at the same time with a new patient? So it is challenging sometimes. This is because there is a high variability in how doctors determine which test to order and not always follow guidelines. There are not always guidelines available for everything. So the truth is that most of the time doctors will be guided by symptoms. And as part of a general blood work, celiac is so common that if someone has diarrhea, bloating, distension, abdominal pain, of course, they are not limited to those symptoms, but it's a low threshold to, to, to check for TTG. And if a person has diarrhea, abdominal pain, those are common symptoms also for IBD. And especially now in Canada and well, US too, the rates of IBD are high and are increasing, right? So there is a low threshold to test or the stool test, which is called protecting or a CRP, you know, like in blood work, it's a very low threshold to do that. So doc- most doctors are doing this when patient has symptoms. And if a TTG comes positive, as, as I previously mentioned, it's important because TTG only, especially when it's not in a very high rate, is not 100% specific for celiac. So it's important to dig deeper there and proceed with further uh, tests, for example, doing an endoscopy to obtain biopsies and see if this is celiac. And again, if the person has more lower symptoms and diarrhea to liquid or her blood, very likely they're going to order colonoscopy as well. So again, it's mostly guided by symptoms, but again, symptoms are not 100% specific. So it's, it's challenging for everyone. So I know behind the scenes, you're becoming the guideline queen. Maybe this will become a guideline that you'll create someday. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> guidelines are not that easy. That's why there are not many guidelines there. <laughs> So this might be hard to answer, but do you think that all patients diagnosed with celiac or IBD should be tested for the other at the point of diagnosis? Yes, it's important to, I would say, to clarify that we don't have enough information to 
make a recommendation at this moment. And again, we need to assess all these. And it's not just the frequency what will determine recommendations. So we need more studies so see it, not only the association, but what will happen if someone is diagnosed with celiac, how they will respond if concomitant to IBD, what are the consequences of treating, non-treating, what are the risks of doing, you know, like additional treatment versus not treating. So we need more information on outcomes and how people will react to these conditions. And we are not ready to test for everyone. So while we probably can't answer the question, which came first, is there a way to prevent developing a related condition or predicting if someone will get one if they already have celiac disease? That's another area to Very, very interesting question. That unfortunately, we don't have the data to say what is a chicken, what is the egg. In that study, most people with uh, IBD celiac develop early, but again, I think it's, it's very difficult to predict which is the first and how to prevent that. We don't have yet that information. I think that's a question that we have to study in so many of these autoimmune diseases that are linked. You know, I feel like we talk about all the time, which came first, type 1 diabetes or celiac disease. You know, we don't know the answer. The same with thyroid conditions and celiac disease. So I think there's just a lot of unanswered questions in our field still. Definitely. Absolutely. 100% agree with you. So Eliza now has a beautiful little girl. Knowing that mom has two genetically mediated autoimmune diseases, what testing should her daughter have, if anything? Or what should she tell doctors to ensure early intervention if she develops symptoms? So what is recommended in celiac disease is to screen first degree family members, which includes children, parents, siblings. And the reason for doing this is because first degree family members, including children, are the highest risk population for celiac disease. There is no other high risk population than first degree family members. It could be, the risk could be up to 15 times above, you know, compared to someone that doesn't have a first degree family member. So it's a very high risk. And that's why what we recommend is to screen for celiac disease and most of the time is independently of the symptoms. And this is because celiac disease can manifest in so many ways that we cannot tell one specific symptom or two specific symptoms to be aware of. So when to start screening children, that is a question that many of our patients ask. Usually what is recommended is if the children is doing well and is, there is no urgency to do a test, is to wait until they are after two and a half or three years because that's the time when the immune system is fully developed and they can produce the antibodies. Otherwise, if we do it too earlier, then they will not have the possibility of, do, of developing antibodies and then the test may come false negative. Again, it's uh, if the children is highly symptomatic, it may require other tests and that we recommend to consult with the family doctor or the pediatrician to see what other tests this patient may benefit to rule out celiac disease in the children. And however, in IVD, on the opposite end, there is no recommendations to screen for everyone in the family. As I mentioned, the genetic predisposition is not that strong as in celiac. So screening for IBD will be based on symptoms. The patient is symptomatic mostly. Is there any reason for Eliza to preventatively put her child on a gluten-free diet? So we recommend against that. <laughs> and this is because what happens is without knowing that, that the person is celiac, then the gluten-free diet can lead to more risk and benefits. So it's important to, if, uh, you know, the children is symptomatic or is to do the test first and to rule out celiac and see whether a gluten-free diet is needed. 
again, we just published another studies on the high risk of nutrient deficiencies related to gluten-free diet, and it, it's 60% of people on a gluten-free diet have nutrient deficiencies, and that's not minor. So it's important to emphasize that we need to recommend gluten-free diet only to those who really need it and will produce more benefit than harm. Absolutely. And to still see a dietitian when you're on a gluten-free diet all the time. Definitely. And that's not only because of if the person is celiac and needs to be very strict to guide how to do a strict diet, but also to guide how to do a nutritional adequate gluten-free diet. Absolutely. So what do you see as the future for patients with both celiac and IBD? Are there screening or therapeutic interventions in the pipeline that could help this patient population? I see gluten-free diet can help controlling symptoms in people with IBD as well. There are many medications prescribed with IBD, for example, corticosteroids, immunosuppressants, that biologic, that are have been studied in some people with severe celiac disease and may help controlling, you know, an, uh, celiac disease. So therefore, I, what I think is treating one condition will help with the management of the other condition. And in addition, when you treat someone with celiac disease on a gluten-free diet and you have a gut healing, one of the things that I predict that will happen also is that medication will absorb better. That may help by treating celiac also, not only with symptoms, but controlling the IBD as well by getting more medication in their system. So I, I think it's, a, again, it's very, very important to treat both conditions appropriately if they are diagnosed. Thank you so much, Dr. Pinto Sanchez, for all of the wisdom you shared today. Thank you very much, Vanessa. Now, let's find out where Eliza is today. Eliza's journey to diagnose both celiac disease and ulcerative colitis was a long one, filled with many challenging days. Today, Eliza feels stronger and healthier than she was 10 years ago. She has tried different treatments for her IBD, including budesonide and Remicade, and always sticks to a gluten-free diet. She is now a mom to two daughters who bring her so much joy. In her own words, I never imagined I would have two GI diseases, but I'm grateful to my medical team for getting me to a place where I can be an active part of my kids' lives and enjoy our adventures as a family. But I still never leave home without Imodium in my purse. Thanks for listening to this episode of Raising Celiac. Special thanks to the generous contribution from the Global Autoimmune Institute to make this podcast possible. A reminder to all physicians, nurses, and social workers and dietitians to claim your continuing education credits for listening to today's episode, please visit dme.childrenshospital.org slash raising celiac and complete the short survey attached to this episode. If you like what you heard, be sure to write a review, like, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For more information, check us out on social at at Boston Children's Celiac on TikTok, at Children's Celiac on Twitter, or at Celiac Kids Connection on Instagram. Join us next month when we discuss the relationship between celiac disease and type 1 diabetes. Have a great month!